Hey James, how's it going? Hi Brian. Yeah, welcome to Donkey Votes listeners. We're in for another second episode of 2018. And uh, last week we teed up... uh, Well, firstly, how's your last couple of weeks been, Jim? It's been good. Um, Weather has been okay, you know, nothing too out of the ordinary. Things are heating up here a bit with the... uh, It's going to be a year of the the big abortion referendum, that type of stuff. It's kind of in the news, but... uh, yeah, not much apart from that, Brian. You we went from <laughs> you went it's been from a the, long... the weather to the abortion referendum in one That's sentence. That's right. I, that is a strange uh, transition and a strange segue. I, I sort of regret that, but um, <laughs> that that's really what is topical at the moment. It, it's been it's been a long January, actually. There was there are someone points out to me today there are five Mondays in January this year, and I don't know about you, but. I, I'm definitely feeling it uh, to be a long month. Maybe that's why I started talking about a bush. I don't know. It was a bad idea. <laughs> uh, are you doing a dry January? No, I'm not. No, I don't believe in that type of thing. No. No. And no. Uh, did I hear news of of late as well that the Good Friday drink laws are being abolished? Yes, I I understand that that this year they will be loosened or something or certainly the sun, certainly around rugby matches or I know I think you can head down to the bar or something like that anyway grab a drink oh I right know. so it's, it's just done yeah it's over well, we probably should have researched this before, before yeah. speculating <laughs> yeah <laughs> damn it Brian um, no sorry I saw it because I saw the rubber bandits had uh, tweeted about it uh, oh, about God, you know so annoying those I idiots. actually find them very annoying because he's just sort of yeah. waxing lyrical about the whole separation of church and state, and uh, which is obviously a good thing, but I don't know. I just find them a little bit self-righteous in the way that they unbelievably do self-righteous. Who, who are these guys? Like, and by the way, I know a guy who is in there. I found this out recently. He was in school with them, and they were in like the F, like whatever the lowest class is, D E class, and they're now going on like their most intelligent, you know, pseudo intellectuals. Not for me. <laughs> D E, Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> probably D, right? You wouldn't call anyone in the new class. All right, yeah. Anyway, look, we won't uh, poke the fire too or stoke the fire too much with them. But yeah, yeah, well, I hate them. Yeah, I don't. I don't think many people come out and say that they hate them, though. They just think that they like them because everybody likes them. I, I think we've talked about this before, but I'm still going to say it again. Every time they that idiot blind boy says something some pseudo intellectualism nonsense someone you always have some cretin underneath going oh lads takes a lad with a bag uh, on his head to to speak for the people of Ireland oh the best political commentator in Ireland is the bag he's not the biggest he's not the best political commentator in Ireland he's an idiot moron who, 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 who reads things in, and doesn't understand them and then recycles them in a tweet or something oh he's an idiot all right, Jimmy, relax there. You've got to go to bed soon. It's, it's, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's late. Yeah. You're going to be very worked up. Yeah, getting rightly worked up. All right, let's go on with this thing. <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> so last week, we, last week we had tea, or last episode we had teed up um, that we would have been speaking to Ross Barry Granger about uh, his recent appearance on, um, what is it, Leading Britain's Conversation? That's right. LBC Radio with James O'Brien. And uh, so from James O'Brien to James O'Dowd, you pick up the mantle and uh, give Ross the pedestal to to retort after what happened with uh, the bin scenario. We'll we'll, we'll play a little reminder before we um, 
uh, before we play your conversation with him. Unfortunately, just with time zone difference, I wasn't able to join that chat. But how was it, Jim? Can you give a bit of a preview before we play? Well, yeah, it was. It was. I actually played a little bit of the exchange. He didn't really admit to being embarrassed by it. He did then off air admit that it didn't go well. But I sort of went through. We we go through what what made him turn from being a green vegetarian militant atheist to what he is today so it's an interesting voyage of discovery am i right in saying that he flew in especially for the interview he flew in especially to appear on donkey boats he got from where 20, to where from bristol to dublin a 20 pound return flight he landed at <laughs> 7 6 30 p.m on thursday evening and he left on a 6 30 a.m flight on friday morning and went into work then on friday and went into work on Friday. I think through people's exposure to Ross, they don't find that unbelievable, but it still is unbelievable. But anyway, more about more on that later. Jimmy, what's the story at the moment now? Are we going to talk about Finland or do you want to talk about Leo? Well, let's talk about Leo firstly, because what's happening is if you look at the graph of where Fina Gael are and where Fina Fall are, ever since Leo has become elected, it's just been a upward spike in Fianna Gael popularity whereas Fianna Fáil have just kept going around the same trajectory um, which shows that they were right to be afraid of him coming to the head of Fianna Gael because the people like him Brian you know he's he's the most popular Taoiseach since Bertie Ahern in terms of his popularity numbers he's streets ahead of, of Michal Martin and, and everybody else and really, um, there's no nest. There's no so, so even when he says stupid things or what appear on the surface to be stupid things, like he said, "Oh, people can borrow from their parents to get a deposit," and he was kind of crucified because people were like, "Oh, well, good for him being able to have parents that can afford to give him that money." And then it turned out that actually he didn't even borrow any money from his parents. He took out a hundred percent mortgage, which is in negative equity. So. Everything he touched, even when it seems to go bad, it turns out okay. Yeah. So he's doing great. He's, he's doing a, he's doing a fine job internationally. He seems to be a lot more assured and a lot more confident than his predecessor, and it's all going very well. Yeah, I think he had a he had a bit of a rough patch trying to um, enforce his likability on the international stage. Like when he first went over to was it Theresa May early on, and he referenced the. Uh, the, the nod to Notting Hill yes. in one of his favourite movies or what no what is it Love Actually being his favourite movies yes. it was a bit trite but um, but certainly I saw him speak uh, at the EU there recently enough and uh, very assured of himself and very very likeable mm. I, I think you're right though I, I think the Love Actually reference was was dreadful it was embarrassing and then his messing well, that, around with yeah, we'll, we'll play the Love Actually reference there just for our listeners. Hi, Minister. Thank you very much for uh, hosting us today uh, here in um, 10 Downing Street. It's my first time in this building, so um, uh, there's a little thrill in it as well. I was, um, as we spoke on the way in, and I was reminded of that, that famous scene in Love Actually where, um, where Hugh Grant does his dance down the stairs. But apparently it's, it wasn't actually filmed here, so uh, I didn't get a chance to see the stairs. Um, but it is, um, it is my first visit overseas, uh, and I really want to thank the Prime Minister for facilitating it at very short notice, but it does, uh, I think, underline and emphasize uh, the strength and closeness of the relationship that exists between our two countries. 
Yeah, and then and then the messing around with his socks with Justin Trudeau, Trudes, and like running around in the Phoenix Park with Trudes. But but guess what? That's that's actually what working. What what what's working for him is that he's doing. It's all a huge PR exercise, and we know you know he hired that guy Kim Cannon, who came up with the Wild Atlantic Way to be his like PR consultant, making him as basically broadening his likability to to as as broad a demographic as possible, and it's working very. I think this what this guy Kim Cannon has 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 driven home to him is that the presentation is as important as the substance of what you're presenting and people don't really care about detail and trump has shown that i think he's he's, he's taught a lot he's, he's people have learned a lot of lessons from from trump in that the if you can uh, you know trump's a, a background as a reality tv star um you don't really have to show all that much substance as long as you're putting yourself out there in a flashy way that people will remember that's uh, that's going to get you places but anyway so he was in, he, was he under a little bit of fire on, on some um, travel bills there as well yeah well like I don't know if it was fire but he spent a fair bit of money he spent 60 grand uh, in two uh, months worth of travel which is a hefty enough bill um, does it seem like nitpicking though it, it is nitpicking it is nitpicking they're saying how much his hotel was in Silicon Valley. There was a little reference to him going to Chicago and spending one, a $1,000 hotel room or something like that. And they said Chicago, in the article they said Chicago is where his partner is based. Mm-hmm. Uh, his partner is a doctor. And so the implication seemed to be that he was using state money to go and visit his partner. But um, yeah, but then they then they found out that he'd actually paid for that flight himself and that accommodation himself. I think. So. Correct, exactly. So, so why say in the first place? You yeah, know? But, yeah. But that's yeah. Uh, it's the nature of the beast, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so from strength to strength, will it will it falter? I mean, there's always going to be things that can trip you up. We're going to have the very contentious abortion referendum in the summer. The cabinet approved just this evening. And what's his uh, what's his stance on that? His stance, which I understand, he's going to make clear either tonight or tomorrow morning. Uh, I believe he is going to vote in favour of repealing the Eighth Amendment. So he's, he's pro-abortion, in other words. And yeah, that's going to be his his stance. Michal Martin kind of came out early to try and eat his lunch by coming out and saying he was in favour of both repealing the Eighth Amendment and giving him the choice up to 12 weeks but I don't know this this, this is the type of topic which is off our reservation I guess Brian yep yep um, so talk to me about Finland yeah so Finland are doing a kind of an interesting experiment it's called a basic income experiment whereby instead of giving social welfare to people they are giving a basic income of 560 euros a month now with that if you get a job, you you can work, you can do whatever you like, you can earn as much income as you like. But well, no matter what, you're still entitled to this 560 euros a month. And what they reckon this does is that it actually, up front, in theory, it sounds much more expensive. It sounds kind of ludicrous because it's money for nothing. But what it allows people to do then is 
go and, and, and be creative, maybe try and start a business, gives them a bit of breathing space. Because at the moment, if you get a job, you lose your entitlement to social welfare, right? So this makes people more, um, you know, ambitious in their, in their career prospects. And ultimately, they think it'll make society a better place. So it's a pilot project now. It's the first place in the European Union to do it. There are a lot of economists that say this is the future of social welfare. This is the way to do things. And so we'll see how it turns out. So far, the people on it are, are pretty thrilled with it, as you can imagine. They're, <laughs> they're, 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 uh, they're, and they're out trying new things. There's a, a couple of women on it who set up new businesses, a couple of men who on it who, who wanted to start a bookshop, things like that, who are now feel they have the, the time and space to do it. So who knows, it might be rolled out in other places. The Scandinavians are always good at this kind of stuff. Not that Finland, strictly speaking, is Scandinavia, but it's it's right next to it, so. And uh, is, do they have a problem with unemployment? No, they've ex- that's, that's a good point, actually. They have extremely low unemployment, so it's quite easy for them to, to go and start this pilot project with people that are on social welfare because their unemployment is, is tiny. If you try it in somewhere like Greece, it might, <laughs> might not work. Yeah, and uh, is this a kind steps. of a, a, a pilot that has sort of been fueled by the EU, or um... no, not at all. No, it's not a it's not an EU project at all. It's uh, as I say, there are many many economists that that say this is a much better way of doing welfare because it's much fairer because everybody gets it. You know, it's not like if I if you're on a hundred thousand or you don't work, you get this income, and it's fairer for those that pay into the system. And it's fair for those who are reliant on the system because it means they they can actually go and and get it and look to get work and not be afraid of losing the benefit of that of that payment. So it's like a state salary. That's exactly what it is. All right. So everyone can get it. Everyone will get it if if it's actually rolled out properly. All right. Okay. All right. So you're telling us ifs and buts, Jimmy. Come on. We want the news. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it's a pilot project. Keep an eye on it. Let's see if it's rolled out elsewhere. It may well be. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'd look forward to that being rolled out in Ireland. Um, <laughs> you just know that that would never fly. Well, who knows? Maybe in 10 years, Brian, we'll come back and listen to this and then I'll shove, shove it in your face. <laughs> All right, and before we get on to our man of the hour, M5S. What's that all about? Yeah, so this this is an interesting. It's, it's a it's a political party in Italy. Um, we've, we've spoken about it before, but it was founded by a comedian called Beppe Grillo. And by the way, if you've Netflix and you have a spare hour, go and watch a thing called I Grillo. It's actually quite obscure, but it's him for an hour on stage talking about. Uh, it's actually very funny. He's talking about his political philosophy, which is actually entirely reasonable if you listen to him. Um, but it's completely different in that all its candidates are in, are selected off the internet and voted for on the internet by the party members who pay a small fee to join. Their current because Grillo actually was in a car crash where he killed somebody. He's got a criminal record, so he can't run as leader. But the leader is a 31 year old uh, former waiter called Luigi Di Mao. Um, they had the the reason I, we're talking about them is there's an election in Italy in March, which is going to be a big deal, and his the candidate selection procedure kind of made him. It's all done on the internet, as I say, and the system crashed, which meant that current MPs were automatically deselected in certain instances. 
peop- other people that hadn't put their names forward at all to run, they were selected as candidates. So the whole thing was kind of a mess. And the amateurism of the party is may well start to hurt it. Even though at the moment they're the most, the single most popular party in Italy, and um, they've no real structure to them. They kind of flip flop about whether they want to stay in the euro or not, whether they want to offer a referendum on euro membership. But in any case, they are their amateurism starting to maybe come against them. So at at the time, as of now, they're still the biggest party in Italy, but they don't have enough support to go into government on their own. And they've also said they won't go into coalition with anyone. Um, so that is uh, that's that. It's it's something we need to keep uh, keep an eye on because Italy is the main political risk this year, and the election could throw up some very very strange outcomes. Okay, all right, nice one. And without further ado, we will uh, let James and Ross have their chat. All right, donkey votes. We have one of our favorite. If not our favourite contributor, face-to-face interview for the first time live in Dublin. Ross, good evening. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. It's good to have you here. And uh, we're going to go straight into... Well, obviously, we featured your interview your interview last week with James O'Brien of LBC Radio. Um, so let's just, just to frame the conversation, let's just remind listeners very quickly of a, a snippet of that conversation. Yes. How, how, how will a change to the EU landfill directive affect you? But because because every week we have to we have to recycle in a certain way, we have to put food waste. That, that's your that's your waste. council. That's not the EU that's doing that. All councils have different bin policies. But anyway, let's pretend you're right, Ross. To tell me how your bins are going to be a brave new world after March 2019. Again, you're you're reducing it to the. No, the Ross, I'm taking what you give me, mate. I asked for something. You said bins, and now you're embarrassed that we're talking about bins. But it was you that wanted to talk about bins. Well, it's simply an example of how the EU has extended its control over every... And that's the best you've got, you think? So tell me what you're going to be able to do with your bins after we've left, Ross. Well, it depends what what the government decides. What do you dream of? Tell me about your bin-based dream. decide whatever it wants because it no longer has to follow an EU directive that was signed signed into British law by the relevant minister. Okay, again, I'm... I'm sorry for being immature and simplistic, but just describe your bin-based dream to me. What, what, is, what is the future of bins in Abu Dhabi that makes you sort of glow with patriotic pride? That's not what makes me... That's, that's again, very immature. What makes me not glow with patriotic pride... What are you looking forward to? I want to join you in this brave new bin-based future. What will I be able to do after leaving that I can't do now with my rubbish? Again, it depends what the government... Just tell me, Ross, please. What do you want the government to do? What is your bin-based Brexit bonanza? (laughs) What I want is that this government makes its own laws and that it doesn't have to transpose EU directives... Statutory instruments. Yes, I know what you're reading from, but again, last chance. Last chance. Bins. What does the future look like? How do you you feel listening back to that? Uh, It could have gone better, but... Uh, I think people have taken from it what they what they want to take from it. The, the good EU citizens who listen to Mr. O'Brien's show in the hope that he has on some apparently ignorant Leave voter who rants and raves about some trivial issue that 
uh, related to the EU will have heard nothing but that. But a more perceptive and objective listener, and judging by the, the comments on Twitter, there were quite a few, will have noticed that the, the point I was trying to make was simply how our laws are made. And uh, I think the, the most revealing part of the exchange, which I think is in there, maybe towards the beginning, uh, was when I asked him, do you know how EU directives are transposed into British law? And he said no. And the, the main thing I regret is not trying to expose that more and to, to ask him why he doesn't know that, why he, somebody who goes on national radio and criticizes people like me and mocks people like me who voted leave, doesn't know how our laws are made. And I suspect the reason he doesn't know is because he doesn't care. Mm-hmm. And on a related note, one of the really interesting things that's happened that's uh, really quite related to this uh, recently was... <clears throat> The government came out and said, announced that it had passed a law abolishing credit card surcharges. And a really interesting thing happened. That wasn't the government. Well, exactly, it wasn't. It was an EU directive. Payment services directive. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But this shows this shows a remarkable change. The, the government's been doing this for years. The government's always said, we, we've passed such and such a law. And the EU's kept quiet. The EU's very happy to let governments pretend that they're making the laws. But now the mask has dropped. Now everything's changed. And Guy Verhofstadt, the former Prime Minister of Belgium, Britain's chief antagonist in the European Parliament. They're, they're Brexit negotiator. Right? Yeah. yeah. Actually comes out and mocks our government and our Prime Minister, who I despise, <laughs> but still, he has no business doing that, speaking in this manner. Mocks our government and says, what are you talking about? That was us. That was an EU directive. Mm. Very good of you to, to, to like what we do, to like our work. Oh, and by the way, that plastic bags directive uh, law that you passed the other week, that was us as well. And what something quite extraordinary has happened, that people now, who for years looked at people like me and said, oh, the EU doesn't make our laws, what are you talking about? It's maybe 15%, 20% of our well, laws. That's what, a, that's what a House of Lords committee came up with. Hmm. Uh, they came up, I think it was 11, between 11 and 15% hmm. of laws come from Brussels. That, that, that was the figure they come up with. I didn't compile the research, but I've seen the report. Well, it might do, but for, for a long time, the EU didn't... I, I don't know what the exact figure is. It's like 350 million figure. It's very high. It says a lot about the opacity and the, uh, the, the murkiness of EU affairs, and no one can ever give us a straight answer on these quite important questions. It says a lot about the EU that now that we're trying to leave, they've come out and said, oh, no, no, it's us. It's us actually doing this. Mm-hmm. That's quite an incredible thing for Geeker Hofstadt to do. And people have said this incredible sleight of hand where they said, oh, well, yeah, we've always said this. No one's ever denied that it's actually the EU making our laws. But it's actually good because they're better laws than the, the Conservative government could ever pass. Well, well what, you, what you overlook in saying that is that the, the laws are made in a collaborative fashion. There will be British diplomats in the room <clears throat> making those laws. It's not like, it's not like there are... Uh, a Brussels independent machine that makes the laws and then tough shit you got to take them Hmm. yes the commission is the executive as we know and they have responsibility for drawing up the laws and drafting them but if the council which is represented by and Britain has got massive proportionate weight in the council if they don't like the law it doesn't really they'll amend it or they want they'll refuse to approve it like financial transaction tax and some other examples um, common coordinated uh, the consolidated corporate tax base which we don't like either so 
it, you know, it's 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 true to say that there are many laws originating from the EU and Verhofstadt is a weasel to kind of go and, and, and behave like that when he knows fine well that, that the laws are compiled in a collaborative fashion. You know, it's not it's not a dictatorship from Brussels. You don't you you, you do get a role in, mm. in compiling the laws. We do get a role. Um, there's, and there's, there's two important uh, forces at play here. One is this busybody bureaucratic behemoth in Brussels that wants to sanitize everything and, and, and control everything and regulate every aspect of, of, of human life from landfills to passports, driving licenses, television, internet, Wi-Fi, credit cards, teddy bears, jam, anything you can name. They want to standardize it, regulate well, it's, it. It's uh, a single market, right? Well, <laughs> it's a single integrated market. Of course they've got to do that. Well, we can, we can come to that. Well, well we, it's a very important part of why they do it. <laughs> well, maybe it is. We can... Well, wait, hold on. I'm going to stop you there because in order for the market to be a single properly integrated market, the regulations have to be the same. Governing couches, governing toys, governing all those trivial things you mentioned. It's not because they're kind of megalomaniac, sick dictator up in Brussels wants to do this because he's, 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 he's mentally ill. It's to make the, the functioning, the integrity of the functioning of that market. That's what it's aimed at. Again, other, other, other continents, other continents have, and other countries have free trade ar- uh, arrangements. They're not in a single integrated market, though. This is the biggest, yes. the European Union is the biggest by far integrated single market in the world. There's nothing to, to rival it. A, a free trade agreement is very, very different. Again, we don't. Why, why is this? Why is this so impressive? Why? Why am I, why am I meant to be so impressed by this when it's when it's hasn't done what it's set out to do, which is bring massive prosperity to to to, to Europe? But anyway, the, the, one of the, I the mean, points I, I was going to say was we have this, we have this busy body busy body bureaucratic behemoth that wants to make laws on everything, and on, and in Britain we have governments that are very willing, for the most part, to do whatever they say and to not even not only pass the every law that that is put before them. But to go even further and gold plate it and add all sorts of onerous requirements that weren't in the original directive to the point where we have, where we pass a landfill directive that is wholly unsuited to our needs and our geography and makes it and makes it so that we you can barely. Put I think that is one of the problems that Britain was more um, fastidious in 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 implementing the EU laws. Oh, very much so. Very and, much so. and that was a problem. And and you can see it if you go to any food market in continental Europe. Mm. You can see a thousand EU directives that are being, mm. you know, food up in the counter. You're not supposed to have that. That's that's, yeah. that's against the food safety directives. But they just do it anyway. Yeah. So, so, I mean, again, it's, it's a, a lot of, it comes down to, no more than the immigration thing, it comes down to what the UK government has done. So well, exactly. my view is you should be equally angry. But, but, but before, before we go into that, I want to come back. I want to rewind a couple of years because a lot of people that listen to the show ask me about you and, and they say, God, he's a, he's a strange guy. And I tell them, <laughs> yeah, he, he used to be, a, he used to be a, a green, vegetarian, semi-militant atheist <laughs> that would yeah. routinely mock people that believed in God or or excoriate people that ate meat. Uh, I remember this. Right. I was on the receiving end of these things. Um, I'm sorry, by so, the way. No, don't worry. Please forgive it was, me. It was, very, it was very good fun. But uh, what, I was, what I was interested in is when... So when this all changed, because I knew you and you were like that, and, and you probably went to university, am I right in thinking this? Yeah. And you became a, a, green, a green man. 
so to speak? Well, I was, I was always very green. I became a vegetarian when I was eight uh, because of a documentary I saw on television. And it, it started for as animal a kind rights. Of a, a kind of a blue planet of 1990. It was actually on whaling. It was actually a whaling documentary. It was very graphic. Um, and I loved animals. A lot of kids would live next to a farm. And uh, my mother was a vegetarian. She never forced it on us. But uh, it, became, it was easier because she never cooked meat in the house. It was easy for me to be a vegetarian. Yeah. Uh, but you're quite right. I, I was uh, I, I believed in the, the complete fantasy of man-made global warming, and the, that uh, the carbon dioxide is is the is the greatest the greatest threat facing humanity. This gas without which uh, life on Earth wouldn't be possible. Um, I was and I was terrible. And I and I look back I look back on all that, and I'm I'm very embarrassed at a lot of things I said, and and <laughs> no shame, no trouble admitting this. I'm very embarrassed at a lot of the, the things I said and did, but I grew out of it uh, gradually. That's that's one thing I would like to stress. It wasn't it, there was no Damascene, uh, Paul on the road to Damascus moment where I, I I thought God was speaking to me or like Joan of Arc, angels came in and told me to go and do this, that, or the other. It was a very gradual process that I think most men. Uh, at least used to go through is when you become older and 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 fear starts to set in in your life and children come into your life uh, not my own children my nephews who are as good as, as as my own sons suddenly things start to change and you 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 want the world to be safe and to be ordered and to, and to be clean to be to be free of of foul language and, and obscenities and 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 drugs and pornography and, and all these other d- disgusting things that I that I used to, well, be far too close to. I'm going to any details. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and and I think uh, and vegetarianism, vegetarianism and, and environmentalism is uh, is is part of that. I the global warming is simply it, it's it, it came about gradually actually taking the time to read arguments against my position, which I think a lot of people don't do. When mm-hmm. people say there's 97% consensus, utter nonsense, as if that would matter anyway. Science isn't decided by consensus, decided by, by proof and evidence. Um, and vegetarianism is just, I, I, I'm not really sure that it's, um, that it's Necessary. I think it's a good movement. It's not like if I come out and say Scientology and was telling people it's an evil movement, it's dangerous, and it's gonna it's gonna hurt you. No, you'd be right. It's a useful movement, but it's linked and to, to link into the the very important question of religion and Christianity, um, which is perhaps the most important of all. I think vegetarianism is one of these post-Christian phenomena where people try to worship something and believing something. Having just totally discarded faith and Christianity and Jesus, and interesting Christianity places like like Islam, which is the basis of, of uh, Christianity is the basis of Islam. Most of it, most of Islam is copied from Christianity and Judaism. Christianity has dietary restrictions, and it tells you not to be gluttonous and to to eat too much meat. Mm. And for me, vegetarians, they and I, I used to do this as well. They like to pretend. That if they were to accidentally ingest meat, it would be as if they defended some sort of secular, this secular being. That so, they, so they have these cult-like properties. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. it's very much like a cult. Football's another one. Uh, of course, I, you and I love football, and I, I love Manchester United, and I love uh, I love England. And um, when they lose, I'm I'm very sad. But it it, it is very much 
how how intense it's become now is very much like a religion. There are also sort of rock music, it's another one, people going to worshipping rock bands. There are all sorts of uh, phenomena like this. But I think vegetarian is, uh, vegetarianism is, is, is one of them. People say, I can't eat meat. Well, of, course you, of course you can. And they like to speculate wildly about what might happen if they were to eat meat after them. So many years, I say, well, I can tell you absolutely nothing. Your body will probably thank you for it. Mm. Get up and get over it. Yeah, so, so that's the, the merits and demerits of the, the climate change arguments. We won't get into because <clears throat> it's, it's not going to be, it's not something I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm all that informed about anyway. I probably haven't read as, as widely as you. I, I, I don't believe there's a sinister global movement trying to convince me that there is global warming but who knows I, I could be wrong what, one of the things you touched on there um, was the issue of drugs and you have very strong views on drugs mm. and you have linked um, you've been inspired I know by Peter Hitchens to some extent on this you've linked terrorism to drugs mm. and this is this gets a lot of reaction when we've, when we've had you on before mm. People say, you know, it's just such a ludicrous connection because the people that engage in terrorism are drifters, kind of losers, outsiders. Mm. So they're, they're probably going to do drugs. They're probably going to drink. They're, they're, they're probably idiots that will do everything you're not supposed to do. That's just one of many things they're going to do. And by some other horrible confluence of circumstances, they've end up blowing people up or killing people. Mm. But but you you're very adamant that without without cannabis hmm. this wouldn't happen. In in many cases, yeah, not all. In 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 every case of of rampage killing, I think people know what 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 I mean by that. Whether it's with a van, whether it's with a gun in America, or with a knife uh, in, in in other places, rampage mass rampage killing where somebody goes out and wants to kill lots of different people. Cannabis is is the main one. I should say here the first thing mentioned Islam earlier. I'll say it now. I do not like this religion. I've never liked it. That's one thing. Mm. I, I I've I've never wavered in. I think that the only things I've never wavered in my dislike of Islam, my dislike of cigarettes. Always hated these two things. Mm-hmm. I do not like this religion. I do not want it in Britain, in Ireland, in Belgium, where I lived for eight years, in France, in the Netherlands, in Germany where it's causing enormous disquiet in all manner of ways, large and small, quotidian and, and, and societal, political, social. But I was one of these people, I've said it before, I was one of these people, any anytime there was this, uh, this attack, a uh, particular type of attack, I'd get my pitchfork and my torch and I'd march to the House of Islam demanding that this religion just be eliminated from the face of the earth. We could do that and there would still be these types of attack because, as I said before, it's very simple. These young men, and it's usually young men, smoke this very dangerous, very nasty, very potent drug in their adolescence when their brains and minds are unformed, and it has a very bad effect on them. I do not say that all people who smoke cannabis, thankfully for me, well, I was going to ask you this because, I mean, your conversion has been so dramatic from um, militant environmentalist Marxist, a.k.a. Green, and militant atheist to militant <laughs> quite the opposite. So I well, wonder, maybe, really I mean, did, can, did, did a cannabis distort your, uh, distort your views and, and, and make you, 
I mean, are we seeing the effects of cannabis right now? <laughs> very good, very good. Well, I'll say, I'll, 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 I'll say it openly here on the, to, the, to the world, I suppose, whoever's listening to this. Average um, of to, 200 to my, yeah. to my eternal shame and regret, I smoked this drug in fairly copious amounts, let's say, over a number of years. Don't Again, think, don't, I'm, think, I'm, don't think don't think you're alone. Don't think you need to be. Uh... No, I'm not. Thankfully, for many of my friends, not everyone who smokes cigarettes gets lung cancer and heart disease and emphysema, and not everyone who smokes cannabis will lose their minds in such a way that they will be. <laughs> of course not. Well, okay, well, you <laughs> of laugh course at that. not. Yeah, but again, but there is a link. There is clearly a link. In, in in every case, it's the same. In I lose track of them now. Let's open the massive catalog of, of such attacks. Paris twice, Brussels, London in Woolwich, London in the in the the underground in two thousand five. Uh, where which ones? Uh, Berlin, Sto- uh, Stockholm, uh, Barcelona. Uh, you, you know the ones I'm talking about. They it, all it, smoked cannabis. All of the it, they all fit. Well, so they all. I mean, I know a lot of them. They took steroids to fortify themselves oh, to took, do the yeah. actual attack. They took. To, I think that's uh, quite normal. They take yeah. in Somalia. They they, yeah. they take that cat stuff, yeah. which I believe is quite prevalent in England, mm. by the way. Mm. Um, but but again, even okay, even if none of these attacks had uh, had taken place, there is still no sound case at all to be made for legalizing this very dangerous and very nasty drug. This drug is increasingly correlated with mental illness. If evidence is pouring in has been pouring in for years from all sorts of people, doctors, nurses, psychiatrists, teachers, counselors, parents, all kinds of people saying, and, and we, you, you've probably seen it as well. I've seen it in, in close friends and family, mm. people who just gradually changed and not lost their minds. We, we can, we, whatever that means to maybe, it's quite a, a strong expression, but just become different people and have lost Something is something has changed. Something has gone in their if, minds. You can see it. I don't. I don't fully. I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think if people abuse that drug, certainly, and I, I have seen it. I'm not going to lie. I have seen people change from abuse of that drug. Mm. I think there's, by the way, there's, there's lots of evidence that it helps with um, epilepsy. There's lots of evidence that helps with people in chemo if if taken in the correct way. Absolutely, there's lots of evidence there. Well, there's lots of evidence that swigging a bottle of brandy will well, no, numb any pain. Wow. It's like in it's like in the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn when the escaped slave gets bitten by a rattlesnake and slugs a bottle of whiskey. If if euphoria and numbness were the only criteria, then yeah, brandy would be a medicine. There's no there's no point in legal, in talking about its medicinal qualities when it has such terrible side effects. Thalidomide did what it promised. It cured morning sickness in pregnant women. Mm-hmm. It was only later that we found out the terrible side effects it has. In with cannabis, it's it's over a longer time and it's much harder to detect. Nothing is as as shocking as as deformed deformities in babies. But it's no less terrible. People losing their minds. This incredible gift that we have this 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 metaphysical construct that we barely understand the mind and we're allowed we people want to make it easier for children to access no because if 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 it's legalized children that are i mean a woman there's a woman here in cork whose child was um i can't remember i should remember the illness but i can't remember and Mm. she she needed access she couldn't get access to cannabis medicine she walked from cork to dublin eventually she got a license so she can access Small amounts, like it's not like she hadn't tried. She tried absolutely everything else. 
I mean, there will be these cases. There is that science where they've tried, and, that, and that's the condition for access. You've tried it, a consultant says you need access, and you get access. The science there is robust. I mean, you, you, you may say it's not, but it's, it's clear that it is in, in, in many cases. I don't, I, don't say, I don't say it isn't, but the side effects are too potent. In so some cases, too, too but like we've, like we've just discussed, I mean, like in some cases, there's terrible side effects. It triggers parts of the brain that we, we barely understand. And, and in, other case, in other people's case, it doesn't do, it doesn't do much. Well, again, and this, is, this is very much like the, the tobacco argument back in the 40s and 50s. Scientists, doctors used to prescribe cigarettes to, to women. Hey. It used to be... It, 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 what the arguments that people made they used now to, for they used cannabis. to prescribe cocaine to housewives yeah, or they, ecstasy exactly. because it kept them happy people who, and it did yeah, <laughs> exactly and I believe we'll look back on this in a few I believe we'll look back on this or maybe we won't we'll be we'll, we'll be in Aldous Huxley's brave new world all stupefied on some perfect drug no families no religion no nothing I believe in a few years hopefully we'll look back on this the way we look back now on those adverts those adverts hmm for cigarettes, maybe, saying women maybe. smoke cigarettes. Maybe. Well, the momentum, yeah, the momentum appears to be the other way. Well, um, it's certainly in Britain, it's de facto legal anyway. I take, yeah. uh, I've been taking a particular bus for the last few months, goes through a fairly rough area of Bristol every day, just about when I take this bus, somebody gets on reeking of cannabis, yeah. not smoking it. They've got a large quantity of it. On not them. on the bus though. They're not smoking on the not bus. Smoking well, on the bus. at least we got that much. <laughs> But anyway, so I want, I, want, I want to ask you a bit more about your... You're saying you, you didn't have a Damascene conversion. You just kind of slowly came around to... And went from the very left of the spectrum and you, and you moved and crossed the floor, so to speak, and you went very to the right of the spectrum, very, very... Not, not like, you know, neo-Nazi. I'm not saying that, nowhere near. But I would say, I would say hard right. I'm not saying far right. You're not racist, but I mean... Uh, these, these terms are... are, are okay, you know, oh, fine, you don't recognise the term, but let me ask you then. What, I mean, you must... You, there must have been one or two eureka moments where you're like, oh, God. I, yes, that, what I've been... What I've thought... Again, children. Ridiculous. Children come into, into your life. Seeing my, seeing my nephew for the first time. But you're not thinking for your nephew. I want the water to be clean. I want the air to be... I want the air he breathes to be nice. You know, that, that's kind of a green... Isn't that the green mantra? I don't know. You yeah, know better can, than me. Of course we can have that. And conservative... Conservatism means conserving greenery and conserving clean spaces and having the best environments for families. Yeah, that's 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 what conservatism is, is. Is is the family is the basis of everything. So you like Michael Gove then, because he obviously is. He's got a big green I, agenda. Yeah. He's got the plastic. He also, like you, believes. I wanted to touch on this quickly as well. He also, like you, believes uh, that Northern Ireland, the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement, as as your friend Peter Hitchens would prefer to be called, as it is called. Well, yeah, it's, it's called the Good Friday Agreement also, of course. The, the document itself says Belfast Agreement. Well, right, okay, but it was signed on Good Friday. <laughs> these, these things always happen. I regard, as I said, I regard Good Friday as a blasphemous, blasphemous term intended to give it some moral legitimacy, which is completely lacking. Okay, so... The... Right, so, so, so you don't... You, like, like Ove, you, you don't like the Good Friday Agreement. But yeah, he's got this agenda... <clears throat> to uh, reinvigorate the countryside without the subsidies. You're very critical, by the way, and this is just going to go back to, to the common agricultural policy in the EU. It's one of the things you hate the most. 
Yes, and, and just to tie in, in case we don't get back to LBC. Okay. The thing I regret uh, most of all is I, I took his question a little bit too literally and, put, and answered about an EU directive. Most of the directives are quite benign and the common agriculture policy isn't a directive, it's a policy mm. built on lots of different things. If he, I, I could have interpreted it, and, and to be fair, I think he did, he, he did offer me that. Basically, what don't you like about the EU? And I would have said first, the common ag- now the common agriculture policy, the common fisheries policy, yeah. and the open borders. Yeah. Those are the main three. You could things. have said that. Yeah, yeah. So just directives, the EU landfill came to mind. I think it's uh, it's just a great di- example of how the EU regulates everything, things that are none of its business, and we can manage perfectly well on our own. One of the aims of the, of the common agricultural policy, though, which is, which is overlooked, and which is actually a noble aim and one which I agree with, is to keep... <clears throat> the land being farmed in rural areas and to keep small farms viable. I know mm. proportionally, it's like a tax cut. A tax cut will always proportionally benefit the person on higher income and equally subsidies for land will proportionally benefit the larger farmer. But if you go around rural Ireland and rural England, by the way, and rural Northern Ireland, and you're going to find every farmer is not going to be able to exist or survive without some form of subsidy. That mm. is the way it is. So... What's going to happen now? I mean, are these people just going to drive further urbanization? Are people going to be driven off the land? It's going to be a pretty serious side effect. The Conservative government isn't going to pay them subsidies. Uh, it's, going to be, it's going to be very difficult. Um, I can't give a, a specific policy, but what I would like to say about the, the common agricultural policy is it's first and foremost a political policy designed by France to support French farmers and yes. ultimately, ultimately the French state. But similarly to what, I, what, I, what I've just said... It, 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 it may well have been designed to support French farmers, but one of the central aims, and by the way, it's contained in that book, which you loaned me. I this, gave you. Sorry, you gave me. Yeah, it's, I'm actually... Bought, I, I, bought for you. Thank you very much. You yeah, I, I, enjoy, gift, yes. I do read it quite a bit, by the way. It's just so large that I haven't gone start to finish. But, but that's where I read this. That actually, it was the whole aim by the French and the reason... They were loggerheads with the Anglo-Saxons about it was that the French saw the Brits as heartless, uh, just, you know, um, concerned about economy rather than society, whereas the French were concerned. And I would agree with this. You have to look after small rural areas. You have to keep people on the land. You have to keep people living outside of the cities. I, that doesn't sound like the book I've read. Wow, um, I'll show you the piece. France was concerned. Charles de Gaulle said in the 1960s, after Algeria, farming is the biggest threat to the French Republic. They were subsidizing. They had huge numbers of farmers. I think about 25% of their workforce was in agriculture. They, were su- and they only survived on massive state subsidies that the state was discovering it could no longer afford. And Charles de Gaulle said, what are we going to do about this? This is the biggest threat after Algeria to the French state. So they needed some way to subsidize them. And the way they did it was the Treaty of Luxembourg in 1969, which said that funds will go into the cap and that France will have a massive export market for its enormous surpluses. And that's the only reason they let Britain in. So we would have to pay import duty, uh, duty on imports from the Commonwealth, which we hadn't previously had to do. Those duties would go straight in to fund the cap. And then France would get a, mass, a massive new market for its exports. This is a political policy designed by the French to support the French state. And much as I love France and the French language and the French people, that's not our business doing that. 
Right? We are not under, under no obligation to do that. So whatever, uh, you can talk about no blames all you want. All I can think of is that for years, decades, British taxpayers have subsidized enormous surpluses in France, Greece, Italy, and elsewhere. Surpluses that, that are then either destroyed at taxpayers' expense or dumped illegally. On but the I, know, I know the outcome was not it's far from favorable, but, but it's, the, it's the aims, um, the aim of preserving rural life that I, I support. But we don't have much time left, so let's talk about the future. Yes. So what is your vision for what happens? Obviously, March 2019, the UK leaves. Uh, you have probably a transition um, period of at least one year. But, but what happens then? I mean, what is, what do you think, what did you vote for, you know? I voted, well, I voted because I want us, I want us out of the European Union. Okay. Um, I want us to have, to have and to exercise control of our borders and our farms and our fishing grounds. Probably the, f- the first one and the last one, the borders and the, the fishing grounds are going to be very difficult. We may never get them because we're too, we're too deep in the European Union. It's going to, it would, it would, it's going to take a very long time to extricate ourselves fully. It's as if somebody 40 years ago went to the four nations of the United Kingdom, planted a very large clump of Japanese knotweed, gave it ample sunshine and water for 40 years, and then now we're trying to remove it. So it's, what was the point then? The point, and, and, and you're right, saying it now, I do feel a tinge of uh, maybe a, a tiny, a tiny little tinge that I've had to, to put this uh, decision in the hands of a Conservative Party, which I despise, and which doesn't really want to leave. As a, we have a Prime Minister who doesn't really want to leave, and Chancellor of the who doesn't really want to leave, and most MPs who don't want to leave. All we need is a party that had this in its manifesto and was given a majority. I would like it... Of course, I would like it to go. I would like it to go as well as possible. But ultimately, what I would what I would really prefer is if the government to come out and say we don't think the European, as I do, we don't think the European Union is the best thing for Europe. I have friends, you know, I have friends, good friends from Belgium, from France, from Spain, from Portugal, from Italy, from Poland, from Norway, and above all, from Ireland. And I want what's best. For you and for them and for us. And I think what's best for all of us is that the EU is peacefully and orderly, in a peaceful and orderly manner, disbanded. But you, you're disbanded, you're sorry, an economic nihilist. Dis- no, I, I, want it, I would like it to be disbanded in a peacefully and orderly manner and replaced with intergovernmental bodies. In many you cases. You understand we have a currency, we have a common currency. That's the first thing that should go. But clearly, that is, that is the worst thing of you under, all. But you don't understand how how chaotic that would be. It's been pretty chaotic as it is. Well, it's num- <laughs> if you're look at Greece, it's something close to violent political revolution. By the way, Greece is 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 on its way back. To, to, oh, is it? Oh, yeah. well, it's all been worth it then. Well, no, it hasn't mean. been worth it. No, listen, I'm not. A, I, I don't think we ever should have joined the euro. Ireland. Of course, yeah. I don't think that God, God Almighty, Greece. Well, they cooked the books to get in. So did they? <laughs> I mean. Italy are, are well Berlusconi's starting to leave so it's going to be interesting there but like it or not th- there it is like the, the 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 chaos of unwinding a monetary union is difficult to fathom it's it, it, it's <laughs> difficult to fathom and and, and and things are going okay I mean they could be better we could have had we wouldn't have had such a deep recession in the euro that's for sure but by God, if we left the euro now, we'd have another recession. 
You better believe again, it. I don't want it to be chaotic, it, but it, I'm I'm quite sure it can be done in a peaceful and orderly. Okay, manner. well, look, that's not that's not going to happen. What what for Britain though? <laughs> But again, but, but it's not going to happen. It's not because well, people have savings. People. You ask. Sorry, you ask me. What would I like? No, but like, I'm, not, I'm not. I'm asking about Britain. Stop. Stop saying you want no more EU or you want no more eurozone because that's that's not helping. What nature relationship do you want between Britain and the EU? And don't give me some plaudits about a close, you know, <laughs> red, white, and blue Brexit bullshit. No, I would like. Well, I've, I've never said anything. So I mean, so do you want to stay in the single market? Do you want? I, would, to, I want the. I, I want the Norway option. You want the Norway option? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you'll be a rule taker. You will take all rules that are made in Brussels without a seat in making those rules. All those directions. We might as well have no say now. If we don't, if we don't like something, it generally just gets passed anyway. And first, and when we joined the the, the common market in 1972, we had to agree to 13,000 pages of acquis communautaire. Mm-hmm. 13,000 pages. Well, of what are the advantages of the Norway model over what you had? You first and foremost have control of your fishing grounds. So we might we might never get that back. It'd be very difficult, uh, from what I understand. But certainly worth more than worth trying. Um, and you can control your borders. Some people might say, I know what some people say. We 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 could do that anyway. After three months, EU citizens, quote unquote, have to meet certain criteria. But it's essentially meaningless. We'd have no way to possibly chase that up. So we essentially have no control. We can't stop people with from EU member states entering Britain and they enter in the same queue as me, which I, it's only a small thing, but I, I, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's any kind of border at all. All right, then. I don't think you've made a, made a particularly good case for why Norway's better, but we are... A good case for what? For why the Norwegian model is better than what you have now, but... Uh, control your borders and your fishing grounds. But you can't really control your borders if you're going to be in the European economic area, can you? Yeah, I mean, the, the Norway chooses not to because it, it's it's swept up in this ridiculous tide of uh, global utopian multiculturalism and likes letting in all sorts of people. But we could. All right then, Ross. It's been a real pleasure for a face-to-face interview. Thanks for coming. It has indeed. Thank you. And uh, you'll be back on again probably by phone next time. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. All right. Thanks for listening, folks. Uh, if you have any comments or questions on. Uh, indeed any of our topics or what Ross had to say tonight uh, then shoot us a mail donkeyvotes at gmail.com we're on twitter at donkeyvotes facebook forward slash donkeyvotes the works and until next time chat to you see you later Jim cheers thanks see you then